Father, we do indeed gather to praise you because you sent your Son to win us back, to buy us back. The word of forgiveness has been declared over us by your word. And so we sit here free with ears opened by your spirit, hearts ready to receive from your word. I pray indeed that you would, you would speak now through your servant words of life, words of comfort, words of empowerment. By your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please take a seat. And again, welcome to Epiphany for worship tonight. It is uh, a real honor to be able to introduce to you our speaker. We have a guest. In case you don't know me, by the way, my name is Eric. I'm usually uh, the pastor here, and I still am actually tonight. I'm just not <laughs> preaching. Just not preaching. Uh, tonight, we have, uh, frankly, one of my best friends on planet Earth bringing the word tonight, Daniel Emery Price. Uh, Dan and I have written books together. We record a weekly Bible podcast together called 30 Minutes in the New Testament. Uh, we could spend just about every day together, and we've actually done this for 17 days in a row and still enjoy each other's presence. It's really quite something to see. Uh, and, uh, and I've heard what he's going to bring for you today. I've heard the message he has, and, uh, and it's great. It's good. And so without further ado, let's welcome Daniel Emery Price to our pulpit. <clears throat> I'm not used to hype for a particular thing that you're going to say like that, so that, that added pressure. I'm here for you, buddy. This is why, this is, when you're preaching multiple sermons in one day, you reduce the notes down to one page so that there's a little bit of room for you to make each one a little bit different. It's impossible for you to replicate them. So maybe if this one's not so great, the one that you heard earlier was great based on the stuff I left out. Um... First off, let me say for those of you who, who go to Epiphany, um, as someone who gets asked to speak in uh, quite a few churches, I've spent the last two years speaking at a lot of churches all over the country, and most of the time it is not that nerve-wracking. Um, you assume that if they're asking you to come speak that they, you know, they like you and that, uh, I don't know, maybe you're better than the guy they got. Why would they bring you out if you... If you were infinitely worse. However, when you have a friendship with someone who you know is great, and you get to a church that you know gets the gospel every week, which I know it does, and here's an, there's an added sort of pressure. Um, and when that person happens to be one of your favorite preachers to hear, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a little extra nervousness about it. But I do want you to know that what God has given you at Epiphany is uh, something you should be extremely grateful for in Eric. Um, it's, uh, this church is evidence, I believe, that God does in fact love you very much uh, and has given you a, a great pastor. And so you should, feel, you should feel gratitude for that. Okay, so while I was thinking about what I was going to say, there were two things that influenced this. Um, <coughs> 
One was I happen to be working on a book right now about the miracles of Jesus, so I've been thinking a lot about the miracles. The other was this, you know, this picture, this right here. Let's see, maybe he doesn't have it. It's okay if he doesn't. You should have. It's okay. I can explain it. This right here. Okay. So, this is a picture of an actual store who apparently Jesus has visited. <laughs> so, I saw this and thought that I had missed it. But all of a sudden, I started believing in the rapture and that I was blessed and Jesus had walked through the store, changed all the water to wine. This was. Uh, Holy Spirit confirmation that this is what I was supposed to talk about. And so this is what we're going to talk about. It's uh, John chapter 2. It's the first 11 verses. It goes like this. John writes, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding along with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, it had now become wine. And he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom to him and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have all drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, when I looked up some stuff about this, uh, this is one of the, the miracles that is in the forthcoming book, which of course you should buy when it comes out. It's going to be a, it's going to be a minute. But uh, when I was looking at some of this, I, I ran across an article that was written um, called "The Miracle of the Grape Juice," which is weird because grape juice does not appear in this text at, at, at any point. Um, and the explanation that they gave was the real miracle here, the real point that we should take away from this, is that the bad wine makes you drunk, but Jesus makes the best wine which makes you sober. This is what is known as extreme eisegesis, <laughs> and it appears nowhere in, the, in this text. Now, I am not a prophet. Uh, I am not the son of a prophet, and I work for a non-profit, which is a no-profit. <laughs> but that's not correct. It's not correct. So I'm going to do my best to show you something about this that I think is correct. The, 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 there's this thing, uh, if you go to the Smithsonian, you can see this Bible from Thomas Jefferson, who was a great founding father and a terrible theologian. And he, um, he decided that he liked a lot of the things about the say principles, a lot of things that Jesus had to say. But the miraculous kind of got in the way of this stuff. He didn't like the supernatural. And so he literally took an exacto knife, kind of the equivalent of it, cut out all the miraculous passages, cut out all the supernatural stuff. And you can go see this Bible. 
No, no miracles, no supernatural. Now, we like the supernatural. I grew up in a tradition that loves the supernatural. But when you, when you would cut out the supernatural parts of the Bible, I actually think that you lose more than just these sort of stories about God's power, which, which you obviously do lose. You lose examples of the mighty hand of God working in supernatural ways. You certainly do lose that. But I actually think you lose a lot more than that. Because I think within the, within the miracles, particularly within the miracles in the life of Christ, the part I found fascinating is actually not the miracle itself, but everything going on around it and the reason behind it. God create, turns water into wine. God creates space, uh, the earth and everything that is out of nothing. God parts the Red Sea. God does miraculous things. They are miraculous. But it's the reason that he does them that's fascinating. And when you cut them out, you lose that. And so that's what I want to surround you with. I'm not going to explain, I'm not going to explain how water can be changed in wine. That's a miracle. God does them. Why? And what's going on with it? Well, in this text, you have Jesus. This is the very first miracle that Jesus does. So it's a good place to start. And the first miracle he does, he's at a wedding. Now, he hasn't done anything to become famous or, and have a following at this point. He's done some teaching. He's got a band of disciples, apparently. So they think he's pretty good at preaching sermons about this Torah, that sort of thing. But he hasn't fed 5,000 people with a Lunchable yet. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't spit in some dirt, made some mud, and put it on someone's eyeballs yet, made him, made him see. None of this sort of thing. So he's not invited to this wedding like, you shouldn't invite Jesus, crazy stuff might happen. Or he's not there to, you know, multiply the wedding cake or, or whatever. He's there because he knows the people. His mom is there. Obviously, these families know each other. So he's just there. No agenda, going to a wedding feast. That's it. Now, wedding feasts were different then. These would go on for long times, lots of drinking, apparently. Um, and and the, the hub of the wedding was not like the ceremony like it is now. It was the feast. The reception is everything. <laughs> The party is everything. And they run out of wine. Now Jesus' mother, she goes to Jesus. Now, Je now Mary, Mary knows who Jesus is. She was part of this whole incarnation deal. She didn't forget that she, we just confessed it, that she was like a, a virgin conceived a child. She doesn't forget that. She knows that, that who Jesus is. She remembers the words of, of the angel of who this guy is. So she decides, well, I'll just tell Jesus about it. And Jesus doesn't seem like he's really into it. He's a little irritated by this, it seems. So she says, Jesus, they have no wine. These people drink at all. And he says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Now, I actually wrestled over this for a little bit in um, trying to figure out exactly what's going on here. Because there is sort of commandments about honoring your father and mother. I know that if I called my mother woman, even now at 38 years old, that my dad at 68 years old, we would have our first actual physical altercation where we would actually fight. That, would, that wouldn't work. He would, he would view that as an absolute violation of the commandment to honor my mother. And I think for the mothers in the room, 
that wouldn't be something you wanted to hear. Uh, my mom texted me a while back and said, I think that you've forgotten that you have a mother, which just means I haven't called her as, uh, recently enough. Um, if I had responded, woman, I know who my mother is, that, that, would have been, that would not have been the way to go. Instead, I was like, I know, who, I know who my mother is. How could I forget the most wonderful person in the world? Well, Jesus says woman, and why does he do this? He's not above calling people names. He calls the Pharisees and, and scribes, he calls them a, a brood of vipers, but that's because they act like snakes. Um, he calls Peter Satan, but that's because he's trying to, he, Peter is trying to stop him from going to the cross, doing the work of the devil. He calls his mother a woman, but I don't think it's actually to insult her. I think it's this. She knows who Jesus is. She wants him to do something, and then he reminds her who she is, that, that she is creature, that she is a woman, and that he's God. If it had been his dad who had been there, he would have said, man, what does this have to do with me? Which doesn't sound as offensive. It sounds like something I would say to Eric when he tried to get me to do something. Like, man, what does that have to do with me? But it would, it would be the same kind of thing, though. He's saying, woman, as in, I am your son, but I am, I am the son of God. You are coming to me to do something about this because you know who I am. Let me remind you of who you are. My time has not yet come. But here's the thing. Mary does know her son and has an epic response, which is no response at all to Christ. She does not say anything further to Jesus. Instead, she turns to the servants. Now, who's in the bind here? It's the servants that are in the bind. The servants are in a bad situation here. They have run out of wine. They have no more wine to serve. If you've got a party full of drunk people and, uh, and you're supposed to be serving more wine, who do you suppose is going to get chewed out here? Servants are like, I don't know what to do. When Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, this makes no sense. Jesus just said, this doesn't have anything to do with me and my time's not yet. But Mary knows her son. Mary knows about God. And she thinks, you might be able to say no to me. But you will not be able to help yourself when I throw lowly, desperate, helpless people in front of you. People with no hope of getting this done outside of you. Now we'll see if your time's come. And that's the moment when Jesus' time has arrived. He has been cornered and positioned by his mother, but not by, not by her words, but the words said to people who have no way out of the situation. They cannot help themselves. They don't have, they don't have a bunch of money. They can go buy more wine. They need wine. They need it now. So what happens? Well, Jesus says, there's six jars Go fill those up with water. That is also weird. Why? Why not just say, there's six jars that have me full of wine. I just made it so. I created the universe out of nothing. I can do this. There's six jars of wine right there. Because I said so. 
But no, he says, go fill those up with water. Yes. God, God, is, God has friended us. So these jars are for the, the, the rites of purification. So you, you probably remember in the life of Jesus, describes the Pharisees getting really bent out of shape about disciples eating with unwashed hands and this sort of thing. That's what these jars are. They're for this sort of thing. They're for, to clean you outside. Represent an internal cleaning and that sort of thing as well, but to make you clean. He says, go fill those up with water. Which is not unusual. That's what they were always filled with. And they do. And then they ladle it out, and behold, wine, the best wine. The reason, I think, that Jesus has them do this is because when Jesus is making, or God in general, is making one thing into another thing, he tends to use water. He really likes using water. If he's going to get you out of a really bad situation, sometimes there's water involved. In fact, most of the time there's water involved. The Red Sea parting is water. There's this water all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. Why is he doing this? Why? Well, it's because when God gets us out of the situation that we're in, when God decides that he's going to that his time has come to save us, he also uses water. And while he uses these jars which were, were made to clean the outside of you, he decides to use water for us to save us, but something happens in water. Something happens in water of baptism where you are made something else. You are transferred from darkness to light, made from rebel to son or daughter. You are made from sinner into saint. Well, sinner, saint. That's what happens. His first miracle, he says, I'm going to use water and turn it into this. But what does he turn it into? He turns it into wine. His first miracle involves water and wine. Why is... Why is that weird? Well, we might think, and Thomas Jefferson might have thought, you could cut out all the supernatural things out of the Bible. Because God just doesn't do that sort of stuff anymore, does he? We read the Bible, and we think, God did a lot of crazy stuff back then. You read the Old Testament, and you're like, that, that's pretty crazy. A lot of supernatural things going on for his people. You read the life of Jesus and you're like, a lot of healings going on. He's walking on water. All kinds of crazy stuff. But not now. In Jesus' first miracle, he turns water into wine. But before his death, he takes wine and says, this is my blood. To save you. For the forgiveness of your sins. That's what this is for. This God who starts his miracle-working ministry with water and wine has ever continued his miracle-working ministry with water and wine. 
But still what he does, does still the miracle that he works. When you undergo the water of baptism, God is doing something miraculous. Every Sunday when you come here and you taste the wine, God is doing doing something miraculous. He's saving you. He's giving you himself. His first miracle involves the things that he intends to be miraculous for the life and history of the church. He starts that way and he never ends, he never stops doing it. And what's amazing about this miracle as well is he takes no credit for it. He says that people don't even know what happened. They just know that this wonderful thing has happened. And who gets the credit? The servants. Great plan, guys. You saved the best for last. Unheard of. They knew. Jesus didn't didn't enter in, you know, stage left and say, thank you. My ministry has now commenced. Just wait and see all the stuff I'm going to do. No. Because this is how God works, that God does something miraculous for lowly, desperate people. And by get the credit, I don't mean that we go around saying we saved ourselves, but by get the credit, I mean that God does something by saving you, namely gives you his righteousness and lets you keep it as if it were your own. As if this work was your work and not his work. And so, I think when you cut out the miraculous from the Bible, you you lose, you lose a lot. You know, just lose a supernatural event, you lose what God is still doing, namely seeking and saving. And I don't know what Jesus, what view of Jesus you hold, but I do know this, that the Jesus that Mary knows, the Jesus who cannot help himself when confronted with lowly, desperate People is the same Jesus that exists now. That's the Jesus that we know. The Jesus who can't help himself. The Jesus who over time and time again, when he does miraculous things to help people, says he is moved, overcome with compassion. That's the Jesus that reigns. That's the Jesus that was crucified and resurrected for you. That's the Jesus that is still for you. This is Jesus here in the bread and the wine for you. That's what you see in Jesus' first miracle. This is what Mary knows. And so, Jesus has come for us all today. Right here. And he gives you his blood through the wine of the Lord's Supper. He has made you something new in the washing of baptism. He has forgiven all of your sins. He has given you credit for his work. And he has promised you entrance into the great marriage feast. The never-ending marriage feast. The feast that is to come where the wine never, ever runs out. Amen.